You're listening to the All Things Good Sports Podcast, a product of All Things Good Company. Hey, welcome to the All Things Good Sports Podcast. This is Jeff Pulver, and today... I'm joined by a special guest, Jared Gartley. How's it going, Jared? Doing well. How are you? So Jared has uh, a unique set of skills where he has experience in athletic training. He's just finished up school. He's done many years of clinicals now. And he also has experience refing high school games in multiple different levels for basketball. And Any other sport you've refed? Nope, just basketball. Okay. And, and so your clinicals for athletic training, you've been on the field on the sidelines for multiple college football programs and what other sports have you been with? So I've done, I started off with field hockey for uh, one semester, then I've worked with soccer, football as well, women's hockey, and I've also done some high school sports as well. Awesome. So I know it changes from sport to sport, but on, let's say for instance in college football, what does an athletic trainer do game to game on the sideline? What are they doing throughout the game? Yeah, so obviously it depends on, you know, A, the game and the team that you're playing, you're working for. You know, a lot of what we do is preparation for the game at first. You know, I mean, you have kids coming in that, you know, there's previous injuries or they have certain um, anatomical, you know, abnormalities that they need to, you know, accommodate for. So, so you kind of check in on the players that already have problems. Exactly. Throughout. Yeah. So, you know, obviously we're seeing these players weeks in advance, you know, through practices and stuff like that. So, you know, before a game, you know, you have to be able to wrap ankles. You need to be able to test to make sure everybody's, you know, everything's healthy and ready to go for the game. Because the biggest thing we're doing here, obviously these kids want to play, you know, they want to be able to compete at a high level, but I want to make sure they're healthy because one injury could put them out for the rest of the year rather than setting them out for a game and only be able to play mm-hmm. the rest of the year. So as we prepare for the games, there's a lot of things you have to do to, you know, make sure everybody's ready to go. And as for me as a student, I did a lot of taping ankles. I did a lot of getting people massaged out and ready for games, specifically for football. We do a lot of stuff like that. And then once the game time starts, it's checking in, making sure the water's ready, making sure there's towels on the sideline and stuff like that, making sure that each player has whatever they need. Obviously, depending on the position, we might need a little more things. So for the linebackers and for the people up by the line, the defensive line, offensive line, as heavy hitting and stuff like that, they might need a little bit more bumps and bruises and stuff like that to be taken care of. With a quarterback and stuff like that, the skilled players, you know, you're going to see a little bit more different things you'll need, padding and stuff like that checked and things like that. So, but throughout the game, we monitor, we watch the game, we make sure that we, you know, if we see anything, we watch for different signs and symptoms of injuries on the field. And for the most part, we're just there to make sure that nothing goes wrong. And, you know, obviously there's always a chance of things going wrong, but we have to be there just in case. Cool, cool. So you talk about water a lot. And that's something that I think the normal person doesn't think about. But how important is that for, is it preventing injuries? Is it just preventing overheating and certain things that happens with that? Yeah, no, water is, it's extremely important. I mean, you have multiple injuries that can happen just from not being at your full potential. I mean, slowing mm-hmm. down and causing, you know, certain joints to go in certain directions. And But I mean, there's a lot of internal things that we also have to watch. You know, we, we have many classes that talk about life-threatening injuries and a lot of those are dehydration based and um, certain situations where people aren't drinking enough water getting enough fluids so obviously on the cooler days you know you don't have to watch it as much but for the most part we really need to be paying attention to what's going into our uh, athletes bodies and making sure that they're getting exactly what they need 
So, you know, obviously the sports that you have a lot more energy exertion, a lot more sweating, a lot more need for those water, you're filling up those throughout the game, but everybody needs different requirements and, you know, we're there to meet those requirements. One thing that has come up a lot in sports in the last 10 years, the 10 years before that, and it's really progressed throughout is that players have really kind of taken more care of their body and in professional sports, they've been able to really extend their careers and probably a lot of that has to do with athletic training process and training I think between games and recovery after games. Do you know anything that's kind of changed in recent years or even in the last decade that's yeah. helped players with that? Absolutely yes I mean if you look back you know 15 20 years ago there was in especially like Major League Baseball there's this steroid epidemic you know mm-hmm. you had all these people trying to find a new and more improved way of competing. And honestly, a lot of that was putting damage on body. I mean, 50 years ago, people were doing whatever it took to play. And honestly, you're looking at people having less of time in their careers playing major league sports and professional sports. Concussion research, injury research, skill research. You know, we've adapted so much over time that you can now look at different techniques. And A, you're not hurting yourself as much. B, you're not putting as much wear and tear in certain parts of your body. But for the most part... It's really finding that great spot where you can compete at a high level and not put your body in such a terrible position that honestly puts you at, at a younger age when you have to retire. We have players like Tom Brady nowadays. You know, obviously you see him as the person. He's old. He's playing sports still. Mm-hmm. But he has so many people working for him. He has nutritionists. He has dietitians. Mm-hmm. He has physical therapists. He has occupational therapists, athletic trainers. He has a staff of people that look at every part of his body and try to figure out, okay, how can we make this better? How can we make this better? Because it's not one thing that's going to make you be able to play for 20 years. It's Mm -hmm. working on all those things and certain testings and different, you know, diagnostic testings that really make it so you can understand how the body works and really how you can improve it. So that leads to another question. One thing you brought up is the nutrition. And this is something that has really, really significantly changed because I was watching the Last Dance documentary, and there's an NBA Finals game where Michael Jordan's shooting pregame, and he says, oh, I woke up, had two beers this morning, a cigar, yep. feeling great today. And then he, you know, he goes and he, he wins. It actually wasn't the Finals, it was a playoff game, but they won the playoff game. And I know like Kobe Bryant, the last meal he had before he scored 81 points was pepperoni pizza. Michael Jordan got food poisoning. He was ordering a pizza the night before a game, and... Yeah, Kobe actually got food poisoning once too, and he got like cheesecake and a burger. And and now, and I know that as people get older, that they start to recognize these things to try to stay on top. Like Kobe was drinking like bone marrow soups, like at the end of his oh, yeah. career, like yep. really extreme. And you know, Tom is really extreme now. Is that something that if you're doing the best nutrition that's available for these athletes early in their career, does that really help lengthen it, or do you think it's more? Once you start to slow down, counteract that age, is there a real benefit from doing that when they're young and healthy? Yeah, I think it, you know, I think it also, you're right. It depends on age. I mean, when you're, you know, Zion Williams and, you know, you're coming right out of college and you're, you're playing in the NBA, your body is completely different than when you're later in your career like LeBron James. I mean, mm-hmm. your body metabolizes food differently. It takes in different parts of you know, nutrients that you're getting in your body. And, you know, you're building different parts of your body. Once you're getting late in your career, you're wear and tear of your bones, you're wear and tear of your cartilage. You're going to see a lot of difference in um, just abilities and stuff like that based on how your body's reacting. At a young age, everybody knows it. You're going to 
build more muscle mass, you're going to be able to take in more food and you're, you know, you're not going to see it as much of a difference. But, mm. you know, honestly, for the most part, it's just keeping that consistency. A lot of things that we're taught is maintaining because as long as you're maintaining, that's going to be the best thing for you. You got to keep it going, keep it going. People like LeBron James, Tom Brady, you know, those guys that are at the top of their careers that you see as kind of like those perfect players. You, they talk about the snacks they have. They talk about those things they have pregame, but you know, they're watching every single part of their diet. They are literally analyzing every single part of what's being put into their body. Mm -hmm. So yes, I completely, I am an advocate for before a game, you want to be happy. You want to be, you know, you're ready to go. And one of my teachers, he talks about how he played for a premier soccer team in Europe. And he said that the night before every game, we'd all have a beer together. You know, it was type of just team bonding, just mm -hmm. feeling ready for the game. As much as these guys are going out there, these women are going out there, that they're professional athletes and you know they want to be at the top of their peak performance, they're still humans. I mean, mm -hmm. they're still out there to have fun and still out there to play well. And I mean, even someone like Kobe Bryant with his the mama mentality, that focus mentality, he still has the time for, and he still had the time for being able to focus, but have a good time and enjoy the game that he loved. Yep. And that's, you, gotta, you have to see that in the nutrition you have. You got to be confident, you got to be consistent, but you also have to be understanding that mental health is in there too. You have to be happy. You so. still have to be human. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Cool. but there's some few notable ones in some sports right now that I wanted to bring up and see if I can get your opinion on. One of them was Kevin Durant in the finals last year, famously tore his Achilles tendon. That was in June. So now this NBA season has been paused for a couple months, and they're talking about it coming back maybe late June, maybe July, and they want to, from what I'm hearing, get a few regular season games in and then full seven-game series. So we were talking about this dragging on for quite a while. Now, he was originally ruled out for the season, but now he's at the point where he's shooting jumpers and doing some drills, and there's talk that he might try to come back when this season returns. So June to June, that's a 12-month period. I know Kobe, when he tore his Achilles in 2013, they told him it was six to nine months. He came back about eight and a half, and he played six games, and he ended up, I think he's breaking his leg, so trying to counter his Achilles. Yeah. Do you think that that's a reasonable thought? It might be 13, 14 months for that recovery, or do you think he needs more time than that realistically? Yeah, I think it obviously we're taught that injuries have a standard time for when you're going to see return to play. For an Achilles injury like this, you're going to have time that they're going to be out. Obviously, we look at 6-9 to nine as a stereotypical what we're looking for for recovery time. But for someone playing in the NBA like Kevin Durant, the level that he's playing, the abilities that he has, you want to look at that year time. And I think that's why they're saying you know, possibly coming back because it has been a year and you know, he has the abilities and he has the confidence to come in and play. But I think really the biggest thing you want to look at is the strength, honestly. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, you're doing a lot of damage to the lower part of your leg. I mean, your legs, you know, they carry all your weight. The lower part of your legs is the last line of defense other than your feet before you give out and you fall down. Mm -hmm. So for someone like him, he's getting physical therapy, he's getting rehab, he's getting treatment. And there's so many different types of therapy and rehab that you can go through now. It wouldn't surprise me if he would have the ability to come back this year. Will he come back this year? Honestly, I think that a little bit depends on him. 
I think that it's you're a right. Call at that exactly. Point. Yeah. I think right now he has the ability to shoot around. He has the ability to play basketball right now. But you got to remember, this is basketball games in the NBA. It's, like playing defense on someone like LeBron James or Jason Tatum. Exactly. That's a totally different type of, of muscle. Uh, lateral yeah. motion rather than just jumping. No, six absolutely, inches, stuff absolutely. Like that. And I mean, there's things that happen when you, you're, you're, he, he hasn't been doing anything for a long time. I mean, he's been sitting out. He hasn't been playing. Your muscles atrophy. You haven't. You don't have that strength anymore. You don't have that you know, muscle strength or bone strength. Mm-hmm. So as you said with Kobe, he's been he was out for a long time, and he probably had some injuries that were because he hadn't been doing the level of intensity. And he was before. someone that was trying to push back as soon as possible, and he probably came back too soon. Absolutely. And the same thing actually happened to Marcus Cousins, ended up getting injured really quickly again yep. after he came back from his Achilles. So I think it's, it's every person's judgment, and if Kevin Durant has a chance to possibly go win a championship, I can't blame him for coming back. Absolutely. But, uh, but you know, the, you got to be careful with that. And you, you brought up the atrophy. We were talking before about Clay Thompson tore his ACL in the same series, and that has... You know, somewhat of a similar timeline, but you were saying that a lot of that recovery has to do with building the muscle back up, right? Yeah. With knee injuries, that's what you really have to watch that because with Kevin Durant, with an ankle injury, I mean, yes, we want to make sure we're watching the knee because obviously those muscles come up past the knee, but with ACL injuries specifically, they, just knee injuries more specifically, you're not doing anything with your knee. Mm -hmm. You can do hip movement, but you are not doing anything with your knee. Your quad muscles, your hamstring muscles, your calf, your everything it has not been working at the level it had been before. So, you know, you really need to work on that strengthening, that ability to really be able to use the force that you had before. And honestly, it's just, it's going to take time for him and it's going to be just a lot of little things that you don't really think of. Obviously, you know, you're doing your squats and you're doing your leg press and stuff like that because you want strength, but. He's going to be doing band work. He's going to be doing little things here and there, working on those adductors, the abductors, every part of his leg. Because you're right. I mean, he's a good defender. He's a good shooter. He moves around. He's very physically capable, but he needs to get back to that point. Especially with knee injuries, with that instability, you don't want to re-injure it. That's huge with ligament injuries in the knee, especially with basketball players. They're going up and they're in a compromised position coming down on that knee. You don't want to do it again Mm because... Second times doing that to your knee, that's two years out of playing basketball. That's career And then that's two years of your muscles atrophying and not like playing at that level. Exactly. And the Warriors, I think, have the worst record in the NBA, so there's no reason for him to try to come Absolutely. back right now. Absolutely. So switching over to baseball, Chris Sale... World Series pitcher for the Red Sox. He's always been a Cy Young candidate. He just had Tommy John surgery, and he's actually had a lot of arm issues in recent years. Some people have said based on his motion, puts too much stress on his arm. But what can you tell us a little bit more behind the scenes about Tommy John surgery and where that is in the elbow and anything else that you know about that injury? Yeah, so Tommy John surgery is basically the reconstruction of the UCL ligament, so or the ulnar collateral ligament in um, the middle side of your elbow, the medial side of your elbow. Specifically with Sale and how he throws, it's that almost underhand motion that he does. Mm-hmm. And so what's happening is it's called a valgus force. It means that it's putting a force in the outside of your elbow and it's opening the joint on the inside of your elbow. Oh, okay. So when that joint opens, that's putting strain on that ligament that's right there that ucl ligament so with how he throws he just opens that arm up so much and it just you know it's done damage there so for him he probably has 
tears in that ligament. Obviously, I don't think it's a rupture because, you know, you watch those players and, you know, you see the videos of people throwing and they just stop and they just, you know, the ball flies off to the side. I mean, yeah, this is something he needed multiple opinions on. Exactly. If it ruptures, you know, you don't need yeah, it. You know opinion. if it ruptures. But for him, it's probably just been wear and tear and it's just probably micro tears in that ligament that just, it, honestly, the inflammation is what really kills most people. You know, it's that swelling, that just irritation of the elbow. He probably has had major therapy done to his elbow just to try to have no pain during 10 or 15 pitches. And then, you know, these guys throw BP sets that are 150 pitches yeah. during practice. I mean, they're, they're doing a game and then they do multiple sessions. I mean, it's, it's a lot of stress on his arm. I mean, he throws the ball quite hard too, so you know yeah. he's putting stress on it. But what will happen is they'll reconstruct it. There's multiple areas they can um, find tissue to reconstruct it from. But once they reconstruct it, they're basically threading it through the bones that it's connected to, and they try to make it so it's the strength that it was before. Obviously, same type of thing as any other surgery that you have. You're going to have atrophy in that arm. He's not going to be moving it for a while. You, you'll see the brace that they use for Tommy John surgery. It looks like, I mean, obviously it has gears on it and stuff like that. It's made to keep your elbow in a pseudo-flex position because... You don't want it to be too flexed. You don't want it to be too extended. You want to make sure oh, okay. that, that UCL can heal. So once it heals, it's just going to be rehab. It's going to be a lot of rehab because you have many motions that you do with your shoulder that affect your elbow. You have many motions you do with your wrist that affect your elbow. And once you are able to strengthen those muscles, now it's getting back to throwing. And again, the way Chris Sale throws, it's affecting his elbow. And that's something that you can injure and have to have that surgery twice right i think nathan avaldi has had that yeah you you can have it again and obviously because he's having it now just for the tears in the ucl that's you know that's obviously good he's proactive about it and honestly people talk about wanting to get it done and stuff like that because you don't want to be out of the season people like him you know probably are thinking you know this covid situation i have time to do this we're not playing right now you know i can get the surgery done try to get back and not miss too much of the season and everything miss much of baseball but, you know, obviously there's a chance of, you know, re-injuring it. I don't know. You you might see him changing up his throwing motion next year. We, we don't know, but... That's tough when you're, what, 10 years into a career. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's it's a lot on your, your body to change something up like that. And, you know, you might not see speed that he had before. But, you know, honestly, it depends on the surgery. It depends on how well it goes. And, I mean, he has a lot of staff, as I said. These people have a lot of staff that work with them. And if we feel confident that he can, you know, they'll they'll do it. You know, he'll he'll be back starting pitching again. That's good to hear. So moving on to the NFL, there's one big name quarterback who has not been signed yet, and he suffered a foot injury last year. That's Cam Newton. Now, they've been very vague to the press about what the extent of that injury is, whether it was a break or just ligament damage, but they're calling it a Liz Frank injury. What can you tell us in general about a Liz Frank? But more specifically, someone at Cam's size, I think he's like six foot five, been heavy, he's a big guy somewhat later in his career suffering a foot injury and what kind of challenges he might face with with that in general. Yeah, absolutely. So with Liz Franks, the injuries there, what you're going to be seeing is you're going to see ligament damage, but also you can see bone damage with those types of injuries. Basically what's happening is you have metatarsals that are connected by ligaments and what's happening is those ligaments are damaged. You can have fractures that come with Liz Frank injuries and that's where it becomes a little bit of an issue, especially for someone like Cam Newton. His size, he's a big guy, he plays, he's a very running type quarterback, he likes to move a lot. 
but you have to do rehab on your foot if you're going to be coming back into that type of position and that type of abilities. Your feet, it's tough because they are so far away from your heart, blood supply getting to your heart, being able to heal that area. You're going to be seeing a lot of rehab and you're going to be seeing a lot of wait time before it comes back. You see a lot of foot injuries, you're going to see boots for a while. You're going to have people in boots, they're going to be not doing a lot of movement for a while. They're going to be rehabbing, resting a lot and stuff like that because you want that area to heal. Your feet, again, as I said earlier with your lower leg, your feet, that's the last one. That's yeah. the last thing that holds up your body. And for a big guy like Cam Newton, he's putting a lot of weight on his foot. And if it's ligament damage, yeah, you have to repair that ligaments. I don't know how much they're doing with surgery. Mm -hmm. You know, They haven't really said much if they're doing anything invasive, but... For the most part, it's just trying to get back. I, so think, I can, think he did have he a did, successful okay. surgery. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's all they kind of said, though. So. Yeah. So I mean, could be bone. It could have been ligament. I'm exactly. Not sure. So it's it's one of those things that it's going to take time for him to recover from the surgery. Then it's going to be again strengthening those muscles that haven't been used for a long time. It's going to be making sure that the ligaments healing properly. It's going to be making sure you can do movements. I mean, your metatarsals and tarsals are made. So they can move around and glide on each other so they can, you can step and you can move at different angles. If it's not healing properly, you're not going to be able to do those things that he used to do. I mean, it's just going to be how it is. So, mm -hmm. so hopefully know. he gets to be able to fully recover from that. And hopefully we get to see him play somewhere. Uh, Absolutely. And I, mean, I, I heard that, you know, some people say someone else gets injured, God forbid, yeah. but he gets an opportunity somewhere in the middle of the season to go prove himself again. So it's, it's tough. For us as, I guess, normal people to think of the scale of someone's size. So I know kind of we've talked about before someone like Yao Ming, someone like Andrew Bynum, those seven foot Yao is obviously an extreme example. But someone that's a big person in the NBA versus someone that's a big person in the NFL. Yeah. Yao got that foot injury and he was done. And I think he said that was like a blood flow issue for him because he's so Absolutely. tall. Absolutely. Now, six, five, six, six, that's a totally different scale, right? Yeah, no, you know, that with someone like Yao Ming's size, that gets into the his ability for his heart to pump blood everywhere. I mean, that's you're not going to see a lot of quick heal times for someone like that. I mean, it's going to be tough. Um, someone like Cam Newton, he's definitely a big guy. And the pressure that he puts on his feet is going to be a huge problem. Obviously, it's going to take a little longer because you need to be able to heal your feet. But... He's not completely done, obviously. He is definitely able to re rehab from this. He awesome. will be able to come back. It just depends on him, honestly. I mean, that's how it's going to be. Perfect. So, because of your refing experience, I have a few questions because you've refed high school basketball and... A lot of the time, I know when I was growing up, I tried to watch the NBA and try to mimic their moves a little bit when I was playing basketball f for school. And I think you obviously have that happening all over the country in, in high school basketball. Oh, yeah. So there's a few questions that I have about things that happen in the NBA with their rules and if they translate the same to high school basketball. So, for example, this last couple of years, it started with Harden and it's really gone out to many 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 players most players are now doing this step back with the gather step the three step back how does that translate if someone were to do that in high school basketball is that a travel yeah so according to the so it's iabo is the the organization that makes the high school basketball rules that is a travel based on what they're doing in the nba so the nba has a rule called a gather step which means that 
if the ball's rolling in the player's hand, they can take a step to then gather the ball and then take their two steps to you know, go into their, their movement. So in high school, it's not legal. You can't do that gather step. So it, I have seen it. it. It's hard because, you know, I, I do middle school and I do high school. So I see it at the middle school level and I call the travels and we try to teach it a little bit. And then high school, I call the travels and you know, coaches are yelling at their kids like, come on, you know that's not a rule. And so. the kids saying it. I've seen that a exactly. times in the NBA. I know that's not a travel. This ref is an idiot. Yeah, and so. it, it's the same for that gather step works for their Euro steps too. Because they uh, take absolutely, what's yeah. an extra step in high school because the ball is spinning in their hand, yeah. right? Yeah. So in high school, it is. You, once you take that third step, it's a travel. So it's hard because you're, you're trying to watch for these abnormalities that are com- the difference between the NBA and high school. But honestly, it's when you're doing high school, it's you just can't do those things. It's just it's not the same. So another one I had a question about, which became famous around 2012, 2013, around that time, when Roy Hibbert really kind of mastered this when he was playing against LeBron and some other players in the playoffs was the verticality rule. If you're a big man and you're under the hoop, you can go up, and as long as you're going straight up and you're not leaning down into the player in the NBA, if you go straight up, they can come in contact with you. It's not a foul. It's good defense. Now, it's a little different because they've got the circle underneath the rim where it's a blocking foul, not a charge. So I know that those rules are different. Is verticality called similarly in high school? Yeah, so what we're taught as officials for the high school setting is it's straight up. It's, again, it's not leaning forward. It's not going side to side. Um, They kind of use the analogy of a phone booth, basically. If you're staying in the phone booth and you're going up to jump to touch the ceiling, that's the area that you have. You can't go side to side. Your hands can't go outside of the phone booth. You can't go in front. You can't go backwards. They have to go straight up. So booth. haven't heard that. That's, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how we kind of talk about it, kind of remember it for ourselves. But yeah, no, it, obviously in high school, we don't have the half arc underneath the basket. So when you're doing block charges, it depends on the situation. But for the most part, you know, with verticality, it's just if you go straight up, don't move side to side, it's not going to be a foul. Now, a lot of times I see verticality called that way underneath the basket. But if someone's on the three-point line and they jump straight up, a player runs into them. Is that technically... A blocking foul, a shooting foul, verticality, good defense. How does that change going so, up to the three? Yeah, at the three-point line, it doesn't change at all, really. But what, people just call it differently. Yeah. What it really. should be for rule, I honestly, I hate watching the refing sometimes in the NBA because of the way that people jump into the person playing defense. That being said, though, if they move forward at all while they're playing defense, then technically, yes, by rule, that is a foul because they didn't go straight up. You also don't really see defensive players try that, just jump straight up. Absolutely, at the absolutely. Because so, someone could just go around them. Yeah. The only thing you do have to remember, though, is verticality is only consistent if the person has not shot the ball or gone into their shooting motion yet. Got you. If okay. someone is in the air and then you go straight up, that's a block because you need to give them a chance to land before they... Good point. Um, before they come down. Because if someone, if say, They're protecting for example, ankle injuries exactly, a lot with that. Yeah. Exactly. Say LeBron James is in the air going up for a layup and I cut underneath him, that's, that's an, you know, I'm going underneath him. He, he needs to be able to land. I can't do that. That's going to be a block hmm. every time. Very cool. So I know you've talked to me about this a little bit before, but what's on a really obscure basketball rule that basically only refs know that come out? So, okay, I, I, have, I have a favorite one just because no one ever knows this one. Well, they actually have two. I'll tell you the two of them. The first one, I love this one. If the ball does not hit the rim, you can still get your rebound. As long as you're making an attempt to shoot the ball, you do not need it to hit the rim for it to be a travel. 
you can't and then just, can you catch the ball and then go to dribble again? You can, you, you, it's it's you, like a new possession. It's a new possession. Oh my god! So it's that. a rule that was made. It's it changed a couple of years ago, and you know it's an interesting one. But set the refs' judgment that you are attempting. Yeah, you a shot. are attempting you a shot. Get stuck and then throw the ball five feet. Exactly. Catch it exactly. So, but that is considered a shot. So I, I, that one I love every time. The other one, and it kind of it's a fun one because it's kind of historical too is you can't shoot the ball over a square backboard. So they used to have fan backboards, the curved arc top. You can't shoot over the square backboard. So if you're behind the backboard on one of the square ones, yeah. and the ball goes over the top of the backboard, it's automatically out of bounds, no matter what the direction really? is. If the ball goes over from front to back, it's out of bounds. If it goes back to front, it's out of bounds. So I think that's the opposite in the NBA, right? So it's actually, that is actually the rule in the NBA too. Really? So... That is actually a new... It's, it changed like 20 years ago or something like that. Because I've but seen Kobe do it. I've seen Larry Bird do it. They never call it. But the Larry Bird one... That was from way far out That was side, way right? far out. But it did go over the corner of the backboard. So in today's rules, that shot, that the historical shot Larry Bird had, that would not have counted nowadays. No so I, I thought that was you know great when I learned that. You can't shoot technically over it. So that's an example of one that in the NBA they definitely don't enforce. Because I've seen that directly yeah. behind the backboard. No question about it shooting over the top. But that's interesting. I, I always thought because of some shots that I've seen, like you said, the Larry Bird one, yep. that if it bounces over from the rim side, it's out of bounds. If it goes over the other direction, that it's yep. not. So that's interesting. Well, thanks for coming on, Jerry. This has been awesome. And yep. I think I've learned a lot. I hope the listeners have too. So good luck moving forward in your career. And we'll have to talk to you again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. We are All Things Good Sports. Check us out on social media, at ATG Sports Media. We have an Instagram page with over 6,300 followers now, so that's awesome. Follow our parent company, All Things Good Co., on Instagram, where they're approaching 50,000. That's incredible. You can also join our Facebook group just for listeners. It's small but growing, and you get to see some insight behind the scenes how we're setting up the interviews, how we're trying to grow social media. We look for your feedback. You can ask us questions directly that we can answer on the podcast, all kinds of cool things. So look for that, ATG Sports Podcast Group. And if you're a new listener, make sure you go back and listen to our old interviews. We've done interviews with really cool people in the sports world like Tom Brady's manager, Ben Rawitz, NBA legends Tim Hardaway, Mitch Richmond, MLB pitcher, Marcus Walden, big three player Mike Taylor, all kinds of cool things. They definitely hold up over time. So go back and check it out anytime you want. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Monday. So subscribe and don't miss the next one. Have a great week and enjoy Memorial Day. Thanks, everyone.